house. No, the right house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Timeless love story from the author of The Hours, brought to life by an all-star cast of many of the greatest actresses of our time. Talk to me, an outrageous new comedy inspired by an extraordinary true story, starring Academy Award nominee Don Cheadle, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Cedric the Entertainer, Taraji P. Henson, Mike Epps, and Martin Sheen. Eastern Promises, a thrilling journey into the dark and dangerous London underworld from David Cronenberg, the acclaimed director of A History of Violence with Viggo Mortensen and Naomi Watts. Lust Caution, a highly charged tale of intrigue and betrayal from Ang Lee, the Academy Award-winning director of Brokeback Mountain. Reservation Road from the Academy... Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that would have nominated Jennifer Ely for the RoboCop remake. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Lust. I'm here as always with my co-host, Caution. Welcome. I'm... I'm... I'm, I'm being very careful um, because I am cautious. This is like um, Inside Out for gay people. Yeah, right. Yes. What, what would be what the other ones? What are the three other emotions? It's lust, caution, caution gossip, and um, uh, shablams, right? That's the I last one? I was going to say work. Like work could be it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. The four gay humors, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. We're... Uh, Excited to bring you our third installment of our focused features. Focused, focused features. These are very ready. focused features. Yeah, we're already at the midpoint of the focused features miniseries. Where has the time gone already? We're at the midpoint of focused features, which is, I guess, the point where uh, the we've talked about this before. The focus feature, like, sizzle reels that Love would start that. focus feature DVDs that, yes. like, um, are, like, one of our true, like, what do you call the things that they brought to baby Jesus? Gifts? They brought gifts. I thought there was an official name for that. Oh, anyway, maybe. they brought three. If If we were in this situation, the baby Jesus, one of the three gifts that would be brought to us would be the focus feature sizzle reels right the the um the logo title card, the sizzle reels, and like one of James Seamus's bow ties, I feel like those would be the three oh, yeah. uh yeah. icons of that, yeah, um, I feel like James Seamus would be like the angel showing up though. So it can't right. be his boat. He James Seamus heralds the arrival of uh the motorcycle diaries or something like that. Yeah. Um as the listeners will have already heard at the top of this episode, we clipped a section of the 2007 Focus Features Sizzle Reel. And it's a it's an interesting point because by this point, I feel like the Focus Sizzle Reel that radicalized me was the one that featured um Eternal in the Sunshine. upcoming Yes, in the upcoming films, it was Eternal Sunshine, Vanity Fair, The Door in the Floor, and then 
I don't even know if Brokeback Mountain was on that one yet. It was mostly the films. Motorcycle Diaries was. Yes, Motorcycle Diaries was. Um, And then this one, now it is heralding the successes of Pride and Prejudice and Brokeback Mountain and uh, The Constant Gardener and those things like that. And now we're looking ahead to the films of 2007, which were um, Evening... Lust caution, as you've just, you know, the listeners will have just heard. Evening, just ca- lust caution. Um, what were the other ones in two thousand seven? Uh, uh, Eastern promises and Reservation Road, of course, which we've done. Atonement, which was the big uh, best picture nominee for well, them. We have done every Focus Features movie from two thousand seven that we can do on this podcast. Right. Yes, that's the thing. We've done Evening. We've done Reservation Road, and now. Because we can't do, uh, oh no, we could do Talk to Me. That's the other one. That's the last. Oh yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the last um, Infinity Stone in our 2007 Focus Gauntlet. When we've allowed enough time to pass that we can do another Focus Features again, we should do Talk to Me. We um, love Casey Lemons. We love Casey Lemons. That was a, I believe, that was an Independent Spirit Award winner for Shuatel Ejiofor in supporting actor. Um, I think so. It's a really interesting. Yeah, we're gonna have to let the field lie fallow for a little bit for focus after this uh, after this mini. But when we do, we should do uh, Casey Lemons's "Talk to Me" for sure. I'm gonna keep calling it "Talk to Her" while we talk about it for sure. But um, <laughs> well, we we talked about "Talk to Her" last week. We so did. Very, um, talk to me. Talk to her. Talk to him. Talk to everybody. Talk to us. Talk to us, honey. That's that. That's our pod. That's our new podcast title about. Uh, about gay gossip. Talk to us, honey. <laughs> um, so last we left you fine listeners on uh, our Focus Features miniseries, we were talking about the uh, 2002 Neil LeBute film Possession, which was the first official Focus Features movie. So we talked about how in the transition from USA Films to Focus, Focus hits the ground running, gets Oscar success with The Pianist and Far From Heaven. And so now... We're into the next year, and they really don't let up. Like, the big focus movies in 2003 are, especially in terms of Oscars, are um, Alejandro Gonzalez uh, in Yaritu's 21 Grams, a true feel-good film of the year uh, for 2003. Uh, Just a a bright ray of sunshine waiting for you. Have I talked about how I think... I saw 21 Grams and Monster on the same day. I think oh, I remember God. that, which was a, that was a day. Um, Can we also talk about how 21 Grams is like the um, level playing field for all of our miniseries so far? Because it's a 2003 movie, our first right. main miniseries. <gasps> it's a Naomi Watts oh, movie, shit. our second main miniseries. And now we're talking about it again with Focus Features. 21 Grams is that moment in Contact where Jodie Foster realizes that the... That the, uh, that the um, documents that they've gotten from the aliens meet at a 3D corner. Like, that's what... The, when John Hurt is like, you have to learn how to think like an alien would think. And um, that's 21 Grams, is when all of a sudden the all our miniseries just, like, move into a 3D <laughs> object and meet at a corner. That's the, That corner is 21 Grams. Holy shit, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Um, which is, makes it doubly funny that I don't think either of us likes it very much. Uh, um, no. Yeah. 
Um, it's a real bummer, y'all. But better in 2003, and certainly uh, 21 Grams got a couple of Oscar nominations, a supporting actor for Benicio Del Toro and lead actress for Naomi Watts. But the big Oscar play for them that year was Lost in Translation. And that, I feel like, is a success story for Focus because I think they brought that movie along really well. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That one was a... I'm trying to th- remember what festival it premiered at. And if you give I me a I want to say Telluride, but I could be wrong. Oh, uh, yeah. Telluride Film Festival in late August of 2003. And then they opened it in the States a couple weeks later. But that's a movie I remember just like the Oscar buzz for that one built really well. And... The only thing that I think they really screwed up there, and we've talked about this before, was the Scarlett Johansson of it all, and Mm -hmm. tried to pull a fast one and campaign her as supporting for a few reasons, one of which was she had competition that year with Girl with a Pearl Earring. But, like, Lost in Translation could have very easily usurped that Girl with a Pearl Earring buzz because Lost in Translation was a Best Picture contender, as it turned out. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but and otherwise, it's a better movie and a better performance from her too. Right, exactly. Um, but otherwise, it's a really smart campaign for a, especially in a year with only five Best Picture nominees, to be able to move a smaller movie like that, and, the, and a smaller movie directed by somebody who, yes, Sofia Coppola has like family connections in you know in Hollywood, but she was still pretty much, even though she had directed the virgin suicides she was still mostly known for being like an anchor on the godfather part three so she was still Mm -hmm. kind of a punchline and so to sort of turn that around to get her a nomination for best director she would have been the third woman ever nominated for best director at that time it gets a nomination for bill murray it wins she wins for best original screenplay it's a it's a real uh, success story for Focus, and I think uh, you know a feather for in probably its cap. a movie that's very atypical, certainly in a best picture sense, to the Academy, yeah. especially at that time. Right, small, quiet, talky, yeah, for sure, comedy, um, yeah, yes, exactly. And so um, they have success the next year with another comedy, an even stranger comedy, um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Again, I think a real flex. On Focus's part, that like they were able to sort of make Academy voters realize that, like, no, you guys really love Charlie Kaufman. You nominated being John Malkovich, you nominated um, Adaptation, and he ends up winning Best Original Screenplay, and Kate Winslet gets nominated for Best Actress in a film that is just. I remember when that movie came out, and it came out in the spring, and I remember being like, yeah, people being like, yeah, it's great. It's so wildly off of the type of movie that Oscar voters will go for. Mm-hmm. It, and they went for it. And I think that's got to be, you got to probably least... because they also had the time to see the movie and sit with it, too. Mm-hmm. Whereas if that had been thrust into an Oscar season, it, it, they probably would have not maybe gone there, I think. Maybe I'm being cynical about like their ability to accept that movie. Um, no, I don't think you're wrong at all. Um, I th- I remember at the time, 
I think we've also talked about this, about how Sideways sort of stole its indie thunder. Not that I really mm-hmm. don't think... I mean, I just... I, I say this now. I don't think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind had it to get a Best Picture nomination. But, like, Focus was doing really well with this kind of atypical stuff, as I just said, so who knows. But then Sideways comes along that is a little bit more um, grounded and a little bit more... I remember the people who were sort of bitchy about Sideways where bitchy is just like, well, of course critics like this movie because it's about a critic, like that kind of thing. And it's just like, okay, like, I don't know if that really is like, <laughs> like, I don't know if that's, it's, you know, that's the line of thinking there. Anyway, I think Sideways is a very good movie. Um, but that becomes the like indie Best Picture nominee that year. And still though, um, and that one wins the other screenplay award. But uh Charlie Kaufman winning Best Screenplay for Eternal Sunshine. One of my favorite Oscar moments. Um, really good for him. And a good thing, too, because everything he made since then has annoyed me in some way or another. So It's um, great in the pantheon of Kate Winslet being so thrilled for somebody else's Oscar win. Yes. Oh, very like, true. When they cut to her, it's like almost on the same level as when they kept cutting to her when Leo won his Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Well done. Um... Other movies in 2004 for Focus. We've done episodes on The Door and the Floor and Vanity Fair, so neither one of them got Oscar nominations, but we both remember them uh, with some degree of fondness. But their other Oscar success that year was Walter Sells' uh, The Motorcycle Diaries, starring Gael Garcia Bernal as Che Guevara. It gets two nominations. I forgot that it had gotten a screenplay nomination. That's really good for that movie. And for being a foreign language movie that didn't exactly, like, have super crossover success, it's not like it became, like, a, you know, foreign language thing in the United States, but it gets a screenplay nomination. It did well throughout the season, though, because if I remember correctly, it also did even better at BAFTA. That makes sense. Yeah. It did very well. It was campaigned very smartly. I think Walter Sells was a... uh, a director who had been making a name for himself in indie circles for a while. I think the indie spirits really, mm-hmm. really liked him for, for a good while. Uh, it gets an incredibly like unlikely uh, best original song win, which I always tend to point to when I talk about sort of the aughts doldrums in best original song, but that's not meant as a slight against uh, Jorge Drexler or uh, the, the the song itself. It's just This is when the ceremony was pulling some bullshit too, where it was like everybody who was singing had to be famous. So when the songwriter wins, he goes up and sings the song because they had Antonio Banderas right. perform it on the telecast. Right. Um but like Jorge Drexler, talented as he is and good for him, it's still emblematic of the fact that like best original song by that point had become just very low profile. Like the nominees were all like just real low profile songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Counting Crows for Shrek 2, if, if uh, you want to believe it. So <laughs> 2005 is a big year for Focus. Um, not so much for Broken Flowers, the Jim Jarmusch Broken Flowers, which we do again when we get back to Focus features again in a while. Um, I think Broken Flowers is an amazingly funny Oscar story because it's really funny in retrospect to think that we all thought that Bill Murray was a real contender for Broken Flowers. That, that a year. fucking Jim Jarmusch movie <laughs> right, would right. be what the Oscars would go for. It's like, so a crazy. very, very, very much Jarmusch, Jarmusch movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, wild. But otherwise, 
Um, Pride and Prejudice scores four Oscar nominations. Joe Wright's uh, wonderful Pride and Prejudice. Four Oscar nominations, including Kira Knightley, gets her first nomination for Best Actress. Constant Gardner also gets four Oscar nominations. Comes, I would say, pretty close to getting a Best Picture nomination. I think that's one of those, if it was a top ten, mm-hmm. that would have uh, gotten in. Um, Rachel Weisz wins the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for that movie. Kind of sweeps across the board that year. And then, of course... Their big one, which we all figured this was going to be the first Focus Features movie to win Best Picture, Brokeback Mountain. Eight Oscar nominations, favorite to win Best Picture, Ang Lee wins Best uh, Director, and then we all remember when Jack Nicholson took that stage and what happened. And Crash. Crash. (sighs) Crash. So... Yeah, but otherwise, an incredibly successful 2005. 2006 is a little bit of a step back, although it's interesting to note that they were on the ground floor with Ryan Johnson. They uh, they distributed Brick, which I adore. Um, but their other sort of major movies that year were Woody Allen's Scoop, the less well-regarded uh, collaboration, uh, British collaboration between Woody Allen and, uh, and Scarlett Johansson in as many years. And Hollywoodland, which is kind of a whiff, even though Ben Affleck gets a supporting actor nomination at the Globes. He did well. He got the acting prize at Venice. Did he really? Um, Holy I, shit. I didn't yes, even remember did. that. Um, wow. Unless I'm wrong. I know that he got something for it. Uh, I think he was Globe nominated for that. He definitely was. Some listeners was. wanted us to do that movie in this miniseries. And I think we have so recently <laughs> talked so much about Ben Affleck that mm-hmm. we, we kind of need to refresh yeah. that well, yeah. um, as it were. Yeah. But it brings us to this movie, which is yes. a movie I feel like we've been keeping in our back pocket for a while for several reasons. A, when we knew we were going to be doing this mini series but it also allows us to talk about a million different things that we may not get the opportunity to otherwise right we don't have a ton of opportunities to talk about ang lee although we've done the ice storm on this before um and we don't have a ton of opportunities to talk about foreign language films now Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that which is foreign language films show up in best picture so rarely especially up until the last few years, that it's it's tough to imagine to to imagine foreign language films that had buzz that don't make it there because to attain buzz as a foreign language film, you really have to like be pretty much already there. Do you know what I mean? You have to be pretty much well, almost like guaranteed the, the process of being nominated in that category too is. Also, just kind of its really own uh, insular thing, very different. And a lot of movies that are submitted by their countries may be in the Oscar race without any U.S. distribution, too. So it's like Mm -hmm. the vast majority of those movies are solely in that race. Right. Um, And may not actually be eligible in other categories because the... The foreign language international feature um, category has its own window of eligibility based on the release in the country that submits it. Right. Versus the Academy calendar, you have to be released in the States during a certain time. That's how you get these uh, situations like a couple of the uh, Bergman films, I believe, have had that. And then obviously, most famously recently, City of God. So it's like to have this 
conversation about the international feature category for a lot for us to have talked about it before, like some listeners have wanted, you know, there's it would f- maybe feel a little on the arbitrary side for which one we would do unless you're talking about a much bigger movie like this one. Well, and this is the perfect storm, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. it's the rare foreign language film that is the follow up to a best director winner. Like so Ang mm-hmm. Lee had just won best director for Brokeback Mountain and his follow-up then was going to be this. And so it was impossible to ignore. Add to the fact that it was a focus features movie. Add to the fact that like James Seamus was attached to it. Add, you know, all these, and then it opens in Venice and gets like these great reviews, wins the golden lion at Venice. Um, Two golden lions in a row for Ang Lee because he also won for Brokeback. Right. And so, then the Oscar buzz by that point is real. And even if you thought at the time, it's like, it's going to be tough for a lot of the reasons why there was challenges for Lust Caution, and we'll definitely talk about that. Um, there, it, it, There's a reason why this was on the radar. So um, we should, because we did a bunch about focus at the top, we should get to the plot description so that we can sort of talk about this movie and then transition into the Venice stuff, the eligibility stuff, the NC-17 stuff. Like there's a lot of sort of issues swirling around this movie that contributed to why it ultimately didn't get any Oscar nominations. Um, Mm -hmm. But are you, uh, are you prepared for a 60 second plot description, Chris? I am. Let me tell you guys, this is an almost three hour movie. (laughs) So there is a lot of plot in this movie. Yeah. I will probably have to condense this down quite a bit. Yeah. All right. Um, I believe in you, though. I'm I'm glad you're doing this and I'm not doing this. But yes, I believe in you. But yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, the 2000 film Lust Caution, directed by Ang Lee, written by Hui Ling Wong and James Seamus, starring Tang Wei, Tony Leung Chu Wai, Joan Chen, Wang Lihorn, premiered at the Venice Film Festival on August 30th, 2007, and opened uh, about a month later in the United States, September 28th, 2007. Chris, are you ready? Joe. Yes. All right. Your 60 seconds begins now. All right. Wang Chi uh, Chi is a student in wartime Hong Kong where she uh, quickly becomes a star of an acting troupe that puts on these politically minded plays. The inner circle of her group, led by super hottie Kwang Yu Min, uh, devises a plan to infiltrate the social circle of the wife of Mr. Chi. He is a, uh, of, uh, uh, and he's a recruiter for the Japanese regime occupying China. Uh, uh, Chi uh, is intended to become the, his mistress so that they can kill him, and it almost works, but the Yi's leave Shanghai and Chi Chi's group uh, goes into hiding for killing this guy. Uh, three years Later, she and Kwang Yimin uh, meet and devise a new plan to kill Mr. Yi, who has risen in the ranks is now a spy killer. Um, uh, once they meet again, an affair quickly and very violently begins, and Chia Chi is torn between her sexual attraction to the man she's trying to kill. Um, eventually, he buys her this massive-ass ring, uh, making for an opening for her troop to finally kill him, but Chia Chi cracks and signals what's up, and he gets away at the discovery of this assassination plot. He orders everyone to be executed, but is left with the realization that he was just a pawn, not only to his would-be Times, killers, but also uh, the government he was working for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, dark ending, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there was kind of no way around that. Um, it reminded me that 
for all sorts of genres and, you know, types of movies that the Oscars just really, really do attach themselves to World War II in Mm -hmm. all sorts of contexts. So this is a sort of pre-World War II movie, but this is sort of, you know, it's uh, Japanese-occupied Shanghai, so this Mm -hmm. is sort of a time period that um, the Oscars sort of latch onto. And even in, you know... Uh, foreign language uh, stuff and films set in in Asia, the Oscars, you know, go for this, which was another reason why I think people thought that they were going to go for this. But of course, this isn't a war movie. This isn't. This is a a spy movie slash dark romance, which and an incredibly sexual dark romance, which um isn't a non-Oscar genre, but it's like, it's a little less than like, say, Letters from Iwo Jima. Do you know what I mean? Which had been... It's also like noir adjacent and like Oscars famously don't go for noir. Um, And like, even if you say that it's like World War II adjacent, it's very much like not the concept of a World War II Oscar movie. And I think the way that it is kind of... uh, influence on that war is you can see this relationship and like all of its really complicated layers. Yeah. Um, and especially the leads, uh, role in all of her circle as allegorical. Right. Um, to, uh, you know, the country at the time. It made me wish that I was more studied in, um, 20th century, uh, Chinese and also Japanese history because, mm-hmm. I feel like Ang Lee seems to be saying a lot and having a lot of sort of conflicted feelings about um, the idea of occupying, like foreign occupation and these kinds of things. And obviously, Ang Lee being Taiwanese and the film being uh, at least partially a Taiwanese production and also like she's you know she's in hong kong but uh or right the it's that she gets radicalized with this troop in in shanghai or in hong kong now i need to remember my uh shanghai is the back half of the movie right okay right so i think there's also you know issues of that so i think there's a lot of as you said, allegorical and sort of symbolism within this, like, it's not exactly like an abstract story, but I think Lee is really sort of touching on a lot of things about that time in history, but also that end up echoing through the rest of the 20th century in, you know, China especially. So that's really interesting. And again, it made me sort of wish that I had a little bit more of a base of knowledge about that so i could even you know appreciate even more what angley was doing there but on its face also though it's just a really compelling as you said sort of like noirish spy thriller that then halfway through becomes an incredibly overtly erotic uh thriller and with mm-hmm. these like v- i mean most of the story about this movie as it was covered was about these sex scenes, but it was also because those sex scenes had so much kind of plot and character development happening in them that they were, 
these like incredibly necessary like uh, you get you get why Ang Lee was just like no like this is why it needs to be filmed this way because mm-hmm. so much is going on in those scenes absolutely and i mean so much for the protagonists um I think, like, I, I'd be fascinated to kind of watch the version of this movie, because there's a couple different versions that exist across the globe, because apparently the U.S. R-rated version doesn't, it cuts out something like 30 seconds and then replaces it with other footage elsewhere. Um, and you can imagine the shots that, you know, are completely right. cut out of the movie. Right. Because um, there's one shot that I definitely think is body doubles. Um uh people who've seen the movie know the shot <laughs> right um right uh, but like there is actually a lot that's going on and you do need those scenes and especially with tong Wei's performance to yeah. really kind of understand how her character gets lost in the layers of manipulation and sex and right. like perform the performance that she's doing that's the other thing there's the so much performance meta levels of her character's performance because her character is an actress and mm-hmm. we sort of get introduced to her well once we get past the sort of there's this opening scene even in the opening scene right the opening scene is she's already sort of undercover so there's this game of mahjong where she's playing a character and then we flash back to her getting radicalized in this group which is a theater troupe and so so much of her character is about performance and acting and subterfuge and these kinds of things um Mm -hmm. it made me think though about looking at the sort of the ang lee filmography and where sex sort of hap like crops up in the filmography and where it like completely goes away and there's like really only a handful of his movies that deal with sex as a as a subject at all and i will say with the caveat that it's been so long since I've seen the wedding banquet that I don't remember hardly anything about the plot. And I've never seen eat, drink man, woman. So like, I can't really speak to those two movies, but the ones I'm sort of thinking of are obviously this one, obviously Brokeback mountain, which has a, like people still talk about the sort of spit lube scene. And from like, Eight different directions. A lot of them are just like, that's not how it works. And it's just like, okay. Um, But it's also like, it's memorable because it is like an incredibly sort of like um, visceral. Do you remember? Sorry, this is a tangent. Did you ever see that movie GBF, the sort of gay comedy from like 2013 or whatever? I did not. Okay. So it's like, it's this like gay teen, like high school uh, story. It's really kind of like actually funny, but the main character's, Mom is played by Megan Mullally. And there's this very funny scene where the two of them watch Brokeback Mountain together. And it's sort of like the joke is that like they're very close, but also like the mom is very into watching Brokeback Mountain with her gay son to show how like cool she is. And it's just like, and it's Megan Mullally just sort of like riffing and improving these like fantastic lines. And the one part you can tell they're watching that scene, the sex scene and the thing. And she just at one point just goes, wow, you know, well, necessity is really the mother of invention, isn't it? And it's just, <laughs> it's the funniest goddamn line. But anyway, so that's that's one of the things I always think of when uh, I think of uh, the Brokeback Mountain sex scene. Um, there's also a pivotal sex scene in Taking Woodstock, where uh, the Dimitri Martin character sort of loses his virginity in a tent. And 
the ice storm the definitely ice storm. has like you know sex as a plot point in almost all of its storylines so but then other stuff it's just like it's kind of absent completely from most of his I do other kind of wish he would make another sex movie at me point. too that's what i was thinking yeah absolutely because like you don't automatically think about about that as like an angly thing but when he does it it's really incredibly memorable so you know not to say i don't like his uh newest movie i mean there are some bad ones but like um yeah uh i i kind of liked gemini man um i still haven't seen it it's gemini man okay if you look at it through the lens of, okay, this movie was released now, but they actually made this movie in the 90s. This is a, like, 90s action movie. You'll like it a lot more. <laughs> okay. All right. So many of the ancillary things about that movie, including the fact of I just did not dig uh, Billy Lynn, and, I don't know, the technology of it. I, I, I am one of those sort of, and it's a very typical reaction where i'm just like i just want ang lee to go make regular movies again and it's just like what does that even mean when i hear myself say that i'm just like what does that even mean but (laughs) it's true um i don't know make another make another sex noir this is definitely of the sex thing like this is his most obviously for the obvious reasons uh overtly sexual but like there's the most layers to what sex is because and like it's so integral to the deception that's pulled off because right. like in their first actual sex scene it's two completely different experiences like you're watching the thing happen and you what Mr. Yi thinks is happening is he thinks he is raping her right but she's entering the situation already knowing what's going to happen and it's like it's as gross and off it's as upsetting and off-putting as like yes she had to have sex with another guy yes in like preparing to kill and somewhat against her will in preparing this whole plot so that he didn't think she was a virgin and right. So it's almost so it's like, like there's tactical. layers of what, yeah. yeah, it's layers of what's actually happening, and I don't want to be glib about that scene because of it course. is very upsetting. But then, like they exchange these glances, where it's confusing to the audience because it's confusing to the two people experiencing them too, in terms right. of what they are communicating to each other by the that lead up to the point that. They're really getting into kind of each other's heads so that when the ring scene happens and she basically tells him to run, she almost doesn't have to say anything. She can commute. He can like uh, understand what she's communicating just by what she's expressing in her. Well, and the other thing is, is because those sex scenes are incredibly explicit and incredibly protracted you end up what you, what the goal of those scenes is is for the audience to lose themselves in those scenes the same way those characters are where the characters are have as you said different things in their minds as to what they think is going on they both think two different things is going on and we in the audience know what's going on we know that this mm-hmm. is part of a plot and yet those those scenes are necessary for having those two characters kind of lose themselves in it to the point where, especially with Tong Wei's character, where she gradually, 
you know, as the movie goes along, loses the sense of her mission within that. And so the mm-hmm. audience watching those scenes, and because, again, they're so explicit and they're so protracted, we also lose our, like, our mind drifts off of what the objective of hers is in this scene. And we just sort of just, like, are engrossed in what's you know happening on the screen for very good reason and i think it's incredibly effective that way as well and it's i think it's i mean it's not to say this isn't i mean this is one of my favorite on lee movies um and it's not that it's not like a triumph of writing directing all the craft that goes into it but like i really do think tong Wei is next fucking level in this movie and yeah. the degree of difficulty of having to constantly play and then play in these very um intense sex scenes of the performance of what she wants him to believe what she is actually doing um and then the layer of confusion or f- playing those lines constantly blurring. Yeah. Like, I, and not doing it in these obvious performance, like, big ways. It's a lot of subtlety. Um, yeah. I, every time I watch this movie, I'm just amazed by this performance and, and so, like, how much she is tasked to do. And she ended up being essentially like banned and blacklisted in China for like two and a half years because Mm -hmm. of the explicit nature of the scenes. But also, I mean, like there are always like layers and layers as to, you know, why China is banning some piece of art or another. There's always a political aspect of it as well. Mm -hmm. But um, she didn't really, she wasn't really in anything until like 2010. And, I'm still sort of hoping that she's able to get another role that sort of gives her the kind of platform that Las Caution did, at least in the United States, because, you know, she's an incredibly exciting actress just from her work in this Mm -hmm. film. So, yeah. She's been in a few things that have, like, hit on the art, like, house circuit here stateside, like, um... Begon's film, uh, Long Day's Journey into Night. She's like a supporting player in that movie. Um, but like even that hasn't really been the type of showcase that this movie is and shows mm-hmm. what she can really do. Um, mm-hmm. She was yeah, in Black Hat too, lest we forget. I know nobody saw Black Hat, but uh... um, much we would like to forget Black Hat. I know there's plenty <laughs> of Black Hat is amazing people out there, but I what I should watch. Isn't there a director's cut of Black I'm sure Hat? there is because Black Hat is one of those movies where it's like the version that hit theaters is completely reassembled, like the original third act is the first act or something like that. I have like no what idea. With Salt. I have no idea what version I saw of it. I just know that whatever version I saw, Viola Davis fucking rules in that movie. She's so good. <laughs> she really is fantastic. Um, she's just, she's an FBI you? agent in that, and she's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, we uh, cannot uh, r- uh, neglect Black Hat and the Tongwei uh, filmography. Um, yeah, it's a really – it's as you said, it's a long movie. It doesn't feel – 
as long as it is i feel like which is always a you know a mark no this movie flies and it's incredibly engrossing the whole time i mean some of that too because like it's a little slow going like the plot doesn't really kick in like you mentioned there's the framing device too which doesn't feel essential uh when you're watching it but then when that scene happens it really when like it clicks into place when the framing device occurs it does really kind of allow that moment mm-hmm. of when he sees her sitting at the mahjong table again to yeah. really kind of click in and that's kind of when the eroticism of the movie kicks in yeah because prior to that it's just this like flirtation that feels right. incredibly genuine yeah um like kind of laying the seeds for her confusion yeah. later on so i want you to but, talk like, about to your point sorry it does fly the movie yeah doesn't feel like it's three hours <laughs> i want you to talk about in a second about the eligibility sort of uh uh story of this movie and why it ended up not being able to be nominated uh for an oscar in foreign language film but also the fact that like this did as we you know talked about at the beginning not every foreign language film contender opens in the united states in that same year but this one definitely did and it was mm-hmm. by a major uh independent studio well dependent studio as focus was at that point um <laughs> and so even if say the subject matter or the nc17 rating or whatever made it a challenge for major categories it's still surprising to me that like this is a film with a score by alexandre desplat this is a film with uh fantastic cinematography by rodrigo prieto who got he also won an award at venice for that so like beyond just the fact that like the film ang lee to tong wei like other elements of this film were really, you know, could have been contenders and and weren't. Mm-hmm. And but um talk about the eligibility sort of snags that this movie ran into. This also illuminates why it's difficult for us to talk about a foreign language submission on this podcast is because the process for it and we'll get into why it's very yeah. much an imperfect process. Yeah. And especially at this time, very frustrating. Movies would have to be submitted by the country. Each country only gets one submission. So, like, say, and it's happened, other countries have gotten screwed over for this before. Yeah. Say there are multiple movies that are just like landmarks films from one country in a year. Sorry, one of them's getting screwed over, right. and it's not going to be the submission. It's one um, of those rules where you understand what the purpose of it is. The purpose of it is, especially as you know, the international film community was sort of building, but still, it um, the roots of America's sort of appreciation for foreign language film are in countries like Italy, France. Um, Germany, that kind of a thing. And so... Italy and France are the most awarded countries in this category in the history of the Oscars. And so to keep foreign language film from being even more overrun by those sort of very few countries, this Mm -hmm. has an egalitarian aspect to it where, like, France can only submit one movie, so can Kazakhstan. So can Italy, so can Taiwan, so can uh, Tunisia. And so you get 
what something like what you had this year where you had nominations from um uh i'm trying to remember if i uh, this is a fun little parlor game i'll have for myself that i will fail uh off the top of my head all five <laughs> countries of origin hong kong tunisia um romania uh, what am i forgetting uh you are forgetting Quavada Saida, which was two countries. Bosnia Herzegovina and yes. oh and uh, Denmark another round wins uh uh from Denmark. So you get that kind of a split and it's the goal of it is noble. I think what sure. what it's it, all about spreading the wealth. Right. And so and it has helped uh advance uh film programs in other countries in uh Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, and helped them get better exposure in the United States. All of those are a good thing. Where it run mm-hmm. into a, runs into a snag is where something like Lust Caution brings up, which is we are an international community now, and movies are less beholden to being just from one country anymore. And whether it's, even when you like, make the onus on where is the financing coming from? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Sometimes financing is coming from different countries. Sometimes a director will be from one country and a cast will be from another and the script will have come from another. Like it's a very, in a increasingly more international sort of borders blurring film landscape. And Less Caution feels like the first movie to be screwed over in that way because Less Caution was deemed ineligible by the Academy after Taiwan submitted it because they said not a significant amount of the people um, involved in the production were from Taiwan. And it's like, especially today, but like at this point, like the, the global filmmaking landscape was changing in terms of like, you know, movies may not come from just uh, it may not all entirely be sourced from one country. And that doesn't, necessarily mean that the movie doesn't speak to or for a certain national identity. Right. I also feel like it kind of punishes a filmmaker like Ang Lee who has come up in the global film community where he draws on collaborators from around the world to participate in a movie like this. Like, Duplat is correct me if I'm wrong, French. He could be Belgian Belgian or something. I believe he's French. Um, Um, Yeah. You know, he's he's truly earned the status of being a global filmmaker. And if you're going to make the rules that the country is submitting it and they are choosing it as their selection, I think there should be a certain level of faith being granted to that. Right. Now, the tricky part of that is that you wouldn't put it past campaigners to try to pull some shit. And, you know, there's... The most recent, like, scuttlebutt on some of this is there are countries submitting movies and the Academy deems them ineligible because there's too much English spoken in them. Right. problem with that is English can be the language of some of those countries, and it just right. gets into this hair-splitting about how well, much is too much English, but, like... That's sort of what I wanted to bring up on the other side of this, because... On the one hand, yeah, you're right. And I just to underline Lust Caution, Lust Caution is a film directed by uh, a 
Taiwanese-born director, co-written by an American, James Seamus, starring uh, Hong Kong actor Tony Leung Chu Wai and Chinese actress Tong Wei. Uh, French, as you mentioned, uh, uh, score composer in Alexandre Desplat, Mexican cinematographer in Rodrigo Prieto. So, like, it is truly a, an international uh, co-production in the most uh, sense of the word, even though it is a story that is incredibly uh, Chinese-intensive, right? It is, like, it right. is... It's you know, like, it, th- this certain kind of ineligibility is like stripping the movie of its actual context, right? right? Like right. yeah. Um in a way that like yes, I understand the reasons for certain type of rules because absolutely there would be people that would manipulate the system. Right. Well, and also the fact that it's the countries themselves that are choosing and the countries tend to take understandably so, I would say, points of national pride in the films that they could hopefully get nominated for the Academy Awards, which are still an incredibly global, uh, prestigious platform. And so mm-hmm. then you get, well, as a country going to choose as its representative, a film that is partially theirs, partially belonging to other countries and other cultures, mm-hmm. or are they going to choose something that is a purely you know, purely from their country. And then that gets also into ideas of politics where like, you know, is Russia going to submit a movie that is critical of Russian culture, politics, Mm -hmm. government, whatever. And you get that. And I use Russia as an example, but like that's true of all of these countries. And so then all of a sudden you're bringing politics into it. And then is, you know, and there's certainly got to be an aspect too that in some countries, you know, the film community would want, would not want to see something that was partially us financed or something right. that you know is is entirely rooted in their film community i also understand that too so like there's layers to it but the other thing i wanted to bring up that you also mentioned in terms of the language spoken in the movie because the other tack that we see taken is what the golden globes do which defines their foreign film category as best foreign language film and the key operating mm-hmm. word there is language and now of course this came into incredible controversy this year with minari when when minari was placed in the foreign language film category and also because the golden globes, the globes. rules right because the golden globes rules say you are either a drama, a musical com- musical or comedy, or a foreign language film. And you can compete in one of those categories. All the other elements of your movie compete in, you know, whatever categories. But um, a film can only compete in one of those. Whatever's part of the problem. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that also includes animated. So it's like... Oh, right. Animated You as can well. never right. be all of those things. Right. You can only be one. You can only be so one. it's like... But the, the thing... And so this caused a huge problem because the, and especially for people who don't follow the Golden Globes as closely as we do, and you can't expect all people to be as psycho as we are, um, when that designation was set down, the implication and the optics of it was, oh, so you're saying that Minari is a foreign film, even though Minari is set in the United States, is very much about a American immigrant story and it feels like and the optics of it feel like you are excluding the american immigrant experience from being an american film now Mm -hmm. i would contend that 
that's not quite what was going on. I think the optics of it are still incredibly bad. But if you look through the Golden Globes history, because the operating word in that category is language, they really, really go by that. And what they go by is what is the predominant language. And so this year of Lust Caution, 2007, if you look at their foreign language category that year, it's real muddled because the winner that year is The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is in the French language, but is a United States co-production. Um, mm-hmm. The Kite Runner is a nominee that year, even though it is directed by um, German, I believe, filmmaker Mark Forster and is a United States production. Like, that is an American Everything you're saying here film. is another reason why I wanted to save this movie to have this conversation, and I have another point I'll bring up later. <laughs> but uh, Lust Caution does get nominated because, again, for the Globes, a country doesn't have to submit a movie. It just has to be in a foreign language, any foreign language. Persepolis is a nominee. from. It's a French movie that is about an Iranian uh, subject matter and takes place in Iran and is also... Um, that's interesting because Persepolis is animated, but it was placed into the foreign language film. Uh, did they have an animated category? They did. They it wasn't always had an animated. Category. They did then, though. Um, but it, it was in foreign language instead. And then the other nominee at the Globes that year was Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, a Romanian movie that was Romania's submission to the Oscars, but it was kind of controversially, or at least, uh, it was left off of the final shortlist, I believe, right? Uh, Again, this this was the this was the thing I was going to okay, bring up. Go for it because, and this is why 07 is a great year yeah. to talk about a foreign language film um, or a non-American um, film, international film feature. The whole conversation because 07 is the year that they started to institute some change, and it's because of that movie not getting nominated instead of the complications that happened around less caution. Um, because, yes, you're right. Four months, three weeks, two days, incredibly lauded around the world. It won the Palm d'Or. It was absolutely expected at that time to be the winner. People really questioned if the reason it wasn't nominated was politically motivated. It is a movie about abortion. Um, I I kind of feel like on an island about that movie. I understand what people like about it, but like I just wasn't wowed by it. I um, think it's a it's it's a good movie that I very much respect, but it's not a surprise to sure. me that Oscar voters didn't go for it because it's incredibly difficult to watch. And even without the political angle to it, like we talk about, you know, following the Oscars as we do, Oscar voters do enjoy uplift and, you know, positive emotion, things like that. And it's not like they don't ever go for bummers. But, like, four months, three weeks, and two days, if you watch that movie and then you're like, oh, Oscar voters are definitely going to go for this. It's just like, are they? It's a really, really, like... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a to me, it's a tall order. I think there are reasons. It's a little bit reliant. The perceptions on that, in terms of Oscar predicting, are a little reliant on the critics, and I don't think that they'll necessarily right. But either way, four months, three weeks, two days is the thing that kind of institutes some change, and it's been tweaked over the years. Um, in terms of right. this is when they institute the executive committee, right? Where we call them the bake-offs like you start having they go from what could be like 
I think we just hit, it, it, the record keeps breaking every year for number of submissions, but anywhere between, say, 70 and 90 movies. And they get narrowed gets whittled to nine. down. Yeah. Right. Um, and, like, even that has changed. At one point, I think there was two stages of bake-offs for it, where right. it went from, like, 15 to 10. Now I think we just have the nine. But also um, that the executive committee was able to, after you've seen that whittled-down list, to essentially... Which the larger academy that has seen the movies, I think they have to prove that they've seen them until right. this past year. Right. The rules have changed so much, it's, it's really all hard to keep It's track. all very confusing to sound, but essentially, for a while there, this executive committee could add back in uh, movies that missed the bake-off list, but they felt were of a sufficient artistic merit that needed to be considered by uh, in this final round of voting. And it didn't mean and that they, I think they made them got nominees. two picks for the Bake Off and one of the actual nominees. This is how everybody thinks that Dog, Dog Tooth, Tooth got nominated. Yes, exactly. Anytime there's a movie that got nominated in foreign language film that seemed uh, off-putting, strange, uh, dark, violent, a bummer. Like, everybody was always like, ah, there's your uh, exec- executive committee pick. Because for a while... There was this streak of foreign language films sort of passing over the most critically acclaimed movie for something that was a little cuddlier or was a little mm-hmm. happier. I, that movie Departures, which was very sentimental, beat out. This year, The Counterfeiters wins, which is another fucking World War II movie, I believe. Right. And so there were, there's but constantly. Like has maybe 5% of the imprint that Lust Caution and Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days has. Right. Um, but also, also, I want to say this yeah, before yeah, yeah, we move yeah. on. Yeah, people still blame the executive committee when things don't make right. it through to the next round. Right. People were like, "Where was the executive committee for BPM?" And it's like, "Well, they're saving other things." Right. You're you're never going to fully ever win. But um, there was this stretch. You're right. The counterfeiters winning in 2007. Um, departures beating out. Films like The Class and Waltz with Bashir in 2008. The Secret in Their Eyes, uh, the Argentine film The Secret in Their Eyes, beating out A Prophet and The White Ribbon. That was a big one, I remember, where uh, that was sort of notorious. Uh, in a Better World, the Suzanne Beer film, beating out um, Beautiful and Alcindes and Dogtooth, the aforementioned Dogtooth. And mm-hmm. then movies that are way more in line with like Hollywood styled storytelling, if, but, if not cuddlier. But then it starts to become like the winners start to become a little bit more, a little less cuddly. Uh, a mm-hmm. separation wins. Ashkar Fahadi's uh, a separation. Michael Hanukkah's more, very much not a cuddly Masterpiece. film. Uh, wins. Uh, I don't like the great beauty very much, but like a lot of people really did. And, um, uh, Ida winning, Son of Saul, The Salesman, A Fantastic Woman winning in 2017. All of these seem to be indicators that whatever the goal was with revamping the voting process for foreign language film, that it was doing some good because, I mean, it's all subjective, right? But like that these right. films that probably would have been a little too idiosyncratic, daring, hard, like, uh, uh, difficult, to win a decade before, we're winning now. So, I will also caveat by saying you just said a lot of Sony Classics movies, and I think that mm-hmm. in regards to this category, 
that is a distributor that knows what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. Um, in terms of getting a movie to win. Yeah. Um, it's a good point. But like there, there's ways that it is getting better. I think changing the name to international feature is a step at least showing that they're changing their mindset because like, it's just the fact of the matter is to get a movie financed, even if it's an American movie, it mm-hmm. may not be American funding. You know, the funding is not all going to come from one place. So if that's what you're considering, that's silly in regards to what a movie is. Right. I think the Academy has a long way to go in terms of considering language in relationship to nationality. Um, well, it's only going to get more complicated as we go along. It's only going to get more difficult to make these distinctions mm-hmm. and designations be- as the film global marketplace becomes more you know global becomes less the border intensive and And i think some of it is because like there's always going to kind of be this jockeying thing you brought up uh michael hanukkah for a more and you mentioned the white ribbon too where it's like some of his movies it's been like well what country is going to submit it because like under this current rule it could be one of four countries but what if they screw themselves over by being ineligible if it's like like for the white ribbon is like is it going to be germany that submits it is it going to be Belgium, which is his national country. It's partially right. French finance, and it's all so in the weeds and yeah. silly. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, in conclusion, um, Libya is a land of contrasts. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know where we ended because there is no uh, end cap to it. But um, I guess to bring it back to less caution, like that kind of Oscar hair splitting obscures what is great and special about a movie to the point where it's like for someone like for something like less caution it's like yeah but you're talking about a really fucking great movie right so I don't know talk about the movie <laughs> that's right how I feel. right so anyway the upshot of it was Taiwan submitted the film for best foreign language uh, and then the Oscars had Taiwan withdraw the nomin- the the submission because of the sort of more international nature of the film. And so that is why Lust Caution was ineligible for Best Foreign Language Film that year and was eligible for all the other ones because, again, as we mentioned, it opened in the United States. And so, you know, those nominations could have happened, but it didn't. But we thought that it had a chance partially because it did so well at the Venice Film Festival that year. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the sort of early kickoff festivals for the fall, the jury for this um, Venice Film Festival was kind of amazing. Like, and, you know, these juries tend to be very good, but uh, it's Zhang Yimou, uh, Catherine Berea, Jane Campion, Alejandro gonzalez Iñárritu, Paul Verhoeven, uh, just sort this of is very much a jury a that would be uh, aligned to love this movie. <laughs> right, right. And so Lust Caution wins. Of course Breya loved this movie. Right. Of course Jane Campion loves this movie. Right. Uh, Lust Caution wins the Golden Lion uh, for uh, essentially best film and the uh, Cinematography Award, as I mentioned, for Rodrigo Prieto. It's a really, really great lineup for the Venice Film Festival that year, one that ended up uh, sort of reverberating through the rest of award season. Rather than run it down, though, Chris, I've made a game 
before we uh, discuss that lineup. So you can Hell yeah. uh, guess. We're not going to do Alter Egos this time. We're going to uh, dip into another type of game that I never named. But um, what I'm going to do is, for each film, each mystery film, I'm going to allow you to ask for either the either five IMDb plot keywords, or the tagline to the movie, or the second build actress in the movie. And then you're going to see if you can guess it from that all of these answers will be films that played not necessarily most of them played in competition um but like but screened in some form or fashion at the 2007 venice film festival all right all right this feels like we could call it phone a friend or something oh it makes me think of the millionaire i like Like, that uh, you know uh, what did they call those phone a film phone a film <laughs> all right I like it. there's 10 movies uh we'll play phone a film all right for your number one would you like the keywords the tagline or the second build actress i want second build actress uh the second build actress in this film is joan chen that is lust caution yeah i thought i'd start us off with lust caution yes uh tagline for lust caution is the trap is set um, a selection of five keywords, uh, male pubic hair, female pubic hair, theater oh. troupe, mahjong, and testicles. Truly a cornucopia Speaking of plot of the keywords. that I said was body doubles. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Film number two. Would you like the keywords, the tagline? Oh, I'll throw another rule. You can't choose the same thing on consecutive questions. I wasn't going to. I like a little variety in my game. All right. You know, you know I like to make it difficult. I like it to make it count when I win in a game. All right. Uh, let's do keywords. All right. So your keywords for this one are attorney, car on fire, medication, class action lawsuit, and sweaty armpit. <laughs> Michael Clayton. This is Michael Clayton. What got it for you? Car on fire. Yeah, car on fire. Let's do it. Yes. It's not Crash. It's not the <laughs> performance by... Uh, What's her name on the Oscar ceremony? Right. Uh, the tagline, of course, is the truth can be adjusted. That is uh, like big and bold on the poster for that movie. Uh, any guess as to who the second build actress in Michael Clayton is? Ooh, after Tilda Swinton. Yeah. You got to go pretty far. I mean, down. the three leads dominate the movie and I haven't watched it in a while. It's so Merritt Weaver. Hell yeah. Yeah. All right, number three, film number three. Would you like, you used uh, keywords there, would you like the tagline or the second build actress? Let's do tagline. Tagline, I think, is the hardest. Beyond the myth lies America's greatest betrayal. Oh, uh, Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Yes, uh, very good. See, this one, I you know your 2007 awards movie, so I feel like you're able to pull from this. Very good. Um, Brad Pitt won uh, Best Actor. Won this, Best Actor, which is very been. surprising to me. Um, the assassin- Not that he's not great, because he is. Uh, assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. The plot keywords there. Kansas City, Missouri. Bank robbery. Hero worship. Based on a true story. And long title. Guess <laughs> uh, Guesses as to the who the second-billed actress in that movie is. Zoe Deschanel. It is Zoe Deschanel. Very good. Yeah. All right. Film number Mary four. Mary Louise Parker is probably first. Hmm. Um, yes, I believe that is correct. For film number four, would you like the keywords or the second-billed actress? Uh, let's do second-billed actress. Second-billed actress in this film is Amara Karan. Hmm. 2007 awards movies from venice 
is is this um who won this is we just talked about this De Palma won director for what is that movie called uh redacted good guess De Palma did win best director for redacted it is not redacted um would you like the keywords or the tagline keywords keywords are funeral road movie mother-son relationship luggage and sex on a train ah uh, yes this is darjeeling limited this is the I darjeeling like limited movie uh i do tagline for this is i want us to be brothers again like we used to be uh, what it's a dialogue was it in quotes movie. no it's just that what a weird tagline yes it is uh all right next one so that was you picked second build actress next one would you like the keywords or the tagline uh, let's do tagline this time. Tagline for this one is obey the rules. Obey the rules. Um, not a great tagline. Uh, not great. Um, second build actress. Uh, well, second build actress, there is none. Is there a first build actress? No. Okay. All dude movies. <sighs> I would normally guess it was a war movie, but I don't think it was. Uh, what are the keywords? Keywords are unfaithfulness, cat and mouse game, country estate, video surveillance, and cuckold. What the hell? Um, I How do you have cuckold in there, but no... Is it gay? No. Mm. Um, this is a film I've never seen. And I had never seen the trailer for it, I realized, until yesterday as I was making this game. And I had no idea that this was what this movie was about. It's a remake, and I've never seen the original or knew what the original was about either, apparently. Okay. Directed by a very famous actor-director who is not one of the two stars of the movie. There's only two people in the movie. There's only two people in the movie. Who are both men. Yes. Actor, director. Yes. He's also not the writer of the film. Who The writer is an incredibly uh, famous and respected playwright. Okay, I know what this is. Why was this at Venice? I don't know. It's the Sleuth remake. With it's the Sleuth Michael remake. Michael Caine and Jude Law. And Jude Law, written by Harold Pinter. And yes. Michael Caine was in the original. Yeah. I Ew. had why, why no that? idea that that's what this was all about. Um wild go watch the sleuth trailer everybody it makes me kind of want to watch the movie even though i know it's supposed to be bad michael kane's um, probably like you may have cuckold of me <laughs> now break into my vault um that wasn't even me doing a michael kane impression because i can't do a michael kane impression i'm the one person who i mean not. i just showed that i can't either so <laughs> all right film number six would you like the keywords or the second build actress uh let's do second build actress this time Charlotte Gainsbourg. Ooh. In 07. Uh-huh. Oh, why was I just thinking of Rampling? No, it's Charlotte Gainsbourg. It's gotta be I'm Not There. It's I'm Not There. Yes, very good. Uh, Todd Haynes is I'm Not There. The tagline for that is, all I can do is be me, whoever that is. Keywords, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, newsreel footage, multiple perspectives, reference to Lee Harvey Oswald, and androgyny. 
All right. Number cool. seven. Would you like the keywords or the tagline? Let's do keywords. Keywords are sailboat, family relationships, alcoholism, working class, and regret. Alcoholism, working class, regret, sailboat. Hmm. Um, sailboat. Everything but the sailboat makes you think it's a Ken Loach movie of some kind, right? <laughs> and yet, is it a not. Ken Loach movie? It's not. It is not. Working class. See, all I'm thinking about is uh, Manchester by the Sea, a movie that, <laughs> that came out a decade later. Yeah. Um, give me the second build actress. Sally Hawkins. Is it a Ken Loach movie? It's not. It really is not a Ken Loach movie, I promise. <sighs> Sally Hawkins in 07. This is even before Happy Go Lucky. Right. Is it a Mike Lee movie? It's not a Mike Lee movie. Fuck off. Um, what's the tagline? I'm not going to get it. Family is family. Blood is blood. We talked about this movie, and I can't remember in what context. We talked about it briefly within the last like few episodes that we did. Um, it is from a director who we talked about when I gave the rundown of all the Focus Features movies uh, at the top of this episode. In 07. In 07. So it was his next year, the year after his uh, previous movie. Oh, so 06. Yeah. Woody Allen? Uh Uh-huh. Because you mentioned Scoop? Yep. I don't know what his 07 movie. Oh, wait. Sally Hawkins, Woody Allen. It's the one with Ewan McGregor. Uh Uh-huh. And Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell. Cassandra's Dream. Cassandra's Dream is the name of the sailboat. So there. Um, All right. Number eight. Would you like the tagline or the second build actress? Let's start with tagline. A comedy about life at the top as seen from the bottom. A comedy. A comedy. I think this one. Second build actress. Yeah. Would you like the second build actress? Yes, please. Laura Linney. The Nanny Diaries went to Venice? I think it played out of competition, but yes. Uh, I guess. No, where did Cute it play? Movie. It played Laura in Linney's its midnight brain. section. That's funny. Uh, it played in Mid- the, the midnight section. midnight movie, The Nanny Diaries. Right. Uh, Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Polcini's uh, The Nanny Diaries. Um, the keywords were female protagonist, Harvard, Upper East Side Manhattan, New York City. All one tagline, Upper East Side Manhattan, New York City. Fourth of July celebration and getting someone's name wrong. Because this is, what pay- this is why it pays to be a Laura Linney fan. The trailer for The Nanny Diaries, a film I have never seen, plays like... Do you remember, when, when, remember when Saturday Night Live did that fake um, Black Widow trailer as a rom-com? That was like, she's just a girl with the Avengers, like that kind of a thing. That's what the that's the tenor of the Scarlett Johansson, Chris Evans stuff in the Nanny Diaries trailer, I will say. Oh, um, wow. All right, number nine. Would you like keywords or second-build actress? Keywords. Murder investigation, drug abuse, strong female character, post-traumatic stress disorder, and topless female bartender. Oh, um... 
Um, huh. I'm guessing that part of this takes place in a strip club? Post-traumatic stress? What's the second build actress? Susan Sarandon. In the Valley of Ayla? In the Valley of Ayla. Yes. 2007 is in the okay. Valley of Ayla. Um, the tagline is One Father's Fight to Find the Truth. That might have been their most applicable tagline. That yeah, might have been, that been the tagline that helped you the most. Um, yeah. At some point, I need you and other people listening to this to go to IMDb and look at the poster for In the Valley of Ayla and just commiserate with me on how poorly uh, airbrushed slash lit slash whatever Charlize Theron is in this poster. It is a... Very bad. I'm just going to say tragedy. Very memorably bad. Oof. All right. Uh, last one? Last one. Uh, would you like tagline or the second build actress? Uh, you know what? The tagline was the way to go on the last one. Give me the tagline. All right. I think you might get this. Torn apart by betrayal, separated by war, bound by love. Atonement, baby. Atonement, baby. Who's the second build actress in Atonement? See the thing. No, wait. We've had this before in Zoom trivia because it's and Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah. Second build actress, I don't actually think is Saoirse Ronan. Is it Rommel Gary? It's Rommel Gary. Yes. There we go, baby. Keywords, miscarriage of justice, letter writing, evacuation, forgiveness, and sex in a library. All accurate. Sounds like my Friday night. <laughs> uh, very good. Very well done, Chris. Good job on, what did we call that game? Phone-a-film? Uh, Phone of film. Stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> of course, it's of course. If we are gonna do it, it's gonna be stupid. So yeah, stupid. Um. All right. This movie only had a seventy-two percent Rotten Tomatoes and a sixty-one Metacritic. What was up with that? I mean, I could understand this being a difficult movie to watch for some people, especially yeah. because of the like sexual dynamic and like I I am open to uh I I understand anybody who would be upset by uh watching some of it especially because it's like allegorical um and there's just like a lot of layers and um and it's also i mean people also reduce movies like this to uh, expecting them to be the most boring version of this type of epic filmmaking and i think don't actually give it a chance for what it's doing because i think this is you know not intense like harrowing but it's very arresting for the whole time and like we mentioned earlier it takes a minute to really get into the movie yeah but people are people are can be so reductive about this type of and we've been that before for not as good of movies i just don't think i i would believe that this is the type of movie that got looked at that way when it doesn't deserve it yeah that's a good point. I can uh, I can understand that. It also got three Independent Spirit Award nominations. Now, interestingly enough, Independent Spirit Awards tend to be very restrictive when it comes to foreign productions. They are very, very much an American uh, award show to the point where, like, British stuff doesn't isn't eligible. Although mm-hmm. the fungibility I think they of do care about 
the funding, though, because it's all about American independent productions. Right. Slash today, it's when they want to consider it that way, even when a movie is made and funded by Netflix, like the biggest corporation of all. Yes. In terms of movie production. <laughs> yes, you do keep bringing that up. Um, yeah, but um, and of course, the uh, the whole thing as the spirits went along was um, if a studio wants it bad enough, they can find ways around budget requirements yes. and uh and national. but so this film was considered american enough in its uh funding to qualify for the spirit awards so it got nominations for tony leung tong wei and rodrigo preto's uh cinematography did not win either of them uh tony leung loses to philip seymour hoffman in the savages tong wei loses to elliot page for juno and Rodrigo Preto loses cinematography to Janusz Kaminski for The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. So it's an I interesting... will not uh, shit on the indie spirits too much here because I'm so happy that all those nominations happened. Yeah. Incredibly well-deserved. Yeah. Yeah, surprising that, it, that with all those nominations that it doesn't get uh, a Best Feature nomination or a Best Director nomination. Director is an interesting year for them that year. It's uh, Julian Schnabel actually wins for The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which really tells you how much of that movie was really coming on strong towards the end of that award season. That mm-hmm. uh, To the point where, like, give that award season another month, and I wonder if Matthew Amalric does, you know, is able to wreak havoc on that Best Actor uh, category. Um Todd Haynes is nominated for I'm Not There, Jason Reitman for Juno, Tamara Jenkins for The Savages, which is a pretty great nomination. Um, she's gotten like two or three Best Director nominations at the at the Spirits at this point, right? One of my favorite directors. Um, uh, nothing for Private Life. I'm sure there was like a Best First Feature for Slums of Beverly Hills. Um, now I'm going to look this up. Um, I, she wasn't I remember thinking that she had a shot for a nomination for Private Life, but I guess that didn't happen. I, did, was she a screenplay nominee for Private Life? I All feel right. like there was a nomination no, there for Private Life. No, she was nominated for both screenplay and director for Private Life. Uh, As she should have been. She was nominated... <laughs> I, I talk out of both sides of my mouth here because that's a Netflix movie, but like Netflix did <laughs> jack shit for that movie, so I don't care. Yeah, you're, you, like the Independent Spirit Awards, are very uh, squishy when it comes to... Uh, <laughs> hard and fast rules <laughs> listen they can be squishy about their own designations then i can be squishy about when i want to shit on them so tamra jenkins got nominated for first screenplay and first feature for slums of beverly hills nominated for director and wins the screenplay award for the savages and then nominated for director and screenplay for private life so she's a six-time spirit award nominee baby she's uh she is spirit award royalty there um also nominated, though, Gus Van Sant for Paranoid Park, which also gets a Best Feature nomination, which, like, mm-hmm. I guess they were very they, into Paranoid Park. Spirits love time. Gus Van Sant. They do, like, talk about patron saints of the Independent Spirit Awards, like Gus Van Sant for sure. And also A Mighty Heart gets a nomination for Best Feature, Michael Winterbottom's A Mighty Heart, which, uh, the Angelina Jolie movie, which I remember liking, but, like, it's not a better movie than Lust Caution. Like, that's it's just... also a Warner Brothers movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, so maybe this is it was originally sort of like Warner Independent, and that's when they f- fell through. No, it was Paramount Vantage. It was distributed oh, par- by oh, Paramount. Never mind Vantage. then. I lied. Um, but anyway, um, 
Yeah, it's it's somewhat surprising. Also kind of funny that like Angelina Jolie gets awards buzz for A Mighty Heart, doesn't get it. And then like that would have been a good Best Actress nomination for her, for her second Oscar nomination. It doesn't happen that year. And then the very next year, they're like, oh, what about Changeling? And it's just like, oh, fucking, all right. Like, I'm glad that Angelina Jolie has another Oscar nomination because, like, she's a good enough actress to get it. But, like, for mm-hmm. Changeling, it's such a bummer. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. What else? What else do you want to talk about in terms of Lust Caution? There was something. Oh, I. we just talked last episode about um, the kind of groundswell of support for Pedro Almodovar um, mm, yeah. with Talk to Her, which wasn't chosen as the Spanish submission in its year. And, you know, there was a groundswell of support to, like, get him this movie that's uh, incredibly um, reflective of his own career. So it's like you can understand why, on top of being a, a masterpiece, but a very strange one. Um why that groundswell support. So you would look at Less Caution and its circumstances and question why it didn't really have the same thing and like focus that year had in the Oscar race, basically um, Atonement and then Viggo Mortensen for Eastern Promises. And I think they were trying for screenplay for that. Yeah. Um, Focus had a bear, very busy year in 2007. They had a say. generally busy year, but like they could have also thrown some weight behind Lust Caution. And it's not like they didn't. Like, if you go and look at the photos on IMDb for Lust Caution, you can go see their FYC ads. I wish that, like, every movie had their FYC ads on IMDb. That should be a requirement for IMDb. They should require that for all films. Absolutely. If any listeners aren't aware of, like, For Your Consideration ads and you've been uh, wondering what that is, go look up Lust Caution. Um but I think the thing that maybe prevented it, aside from any, like, you know, pearl clutching over the NC-17 rating um, in this movie, mm-hmm. is the fact that, like, uh, Ang Lee was just coming off of a huge Oscar success. He had just won the uh, Best Director uh, Oscar for his previous movie. Mm-hmm. So, like, you can feel it's... Even though it's a different thing for, like, Pedro Almodovar, who his movie before that had won uh, Best Foreign Language Film at that time for All About My Mother. Um, I'm pretty sure Talk to Her is the next movie after that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the same thing as a movie that almost won Best Picture, you know? And, yeah. Like, this is probably a movie that, because of all of the limitations we've talked about, was never going to be a Best Picture contender. Yeah. Um, you could see how it would still basically hate using phrases like trickle down but uh-huh. how like there's not as much in the air to say oh well ang lee is getting screwed over right, right. yeah it was tough to do the overdue card for uh, for ang lee after he had just one best director and it's really silly because there's so much craft in this movie like this is one yeah. of my favorite Tapla scores, if not my favorite, like Roger Rodrigo Prieto is. I can't talk today. Rodrigo <laughs> Prieto is a legend, and like yeah. the costumes in this movie are incredible. And of course, like Tong Wei is absolutely amazing. I don't know how. Well, I do know how because this is also the year of Juno. Um, Tong Wei didn't like run away with breakthrough awards, right? Um, yeah. And it's also, this is just a very, 
we, we've talked about how Oscar hasn't gone for noir and such, but this is also a very macho year that, like, you know, this is the year of No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. And right. so, like, the type of things that were coming out on top in this season, I guess it's not that surprise, much of a surprise that something that is so female-centric, like Less Caution doesn't get the attention it deserves yeah and especially as you mentioned sort of juno was sort of taking up that slot for best for lack of a better term that year as well. breakthrough performer right but also in like that's your best picture nominee about a woman so mm-hmm. um because it's also what it's my, like atonement i guess atonement is more about the mcavoy character than the Kieran knightley character especially as it goes on but like the central thing there is that like it's the three Bryonies over the years so like that's at least there's you know dual perspectives in that movie but you're right that's yeah the- i suppose that's true of atonement too but like and it's not to say that like um I don't love No Country for Old Men or Michael Clayton or I almost said Michael Collins because I'm just not on top of it today. Um, and uh, There Will Be Blood. Like, I, it's not to say that I don't love those movies. It's just we know yeah. and we try to push back against, like, us. Yeah. We're just focusing on male narratives. And I think Less Caution deserves a spot next to There Will Be Blood in terms yeah. of consideration. It's a good point. It's a very good point. Did we want to talk about anything else before we get into the IMDb game? Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't talk about uh, how Tony Leung is hot. Yes, he is. We didn't this really was... talk about his performance, and I think his performance is actually really great because he is playing a psychopath who is not a good guy, bad guy, yeah. not even just in the way the movie positions him with it's like he is on the bad side of the political Right. discussion that it's looking at but it's also like he is individually um yes a bad guy right and then i think the kind of real miraculous um thing that happens in his performance is that his like whole concept of not just what happened but who he is is kind of shattered in a way and yeah. like he's defined himself through a certain type of masculinity and Tony Leung plays it in a way that realizes that that was all bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. and that could be so easily um, deceived or used against him. Yes. Um, yeah, Tony- like he really, uh, as much as this movie could be like a bummer, I think his performance really kind of gives us something that's like, aha, see, you yeah. have lost something here, bad guy. It feels like we go through this cycle of every few years um, we're reminded that Tony Leung is hot. Where And it just happened again because he shows up in the trailer for uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And that was like a whole conversation for like two days was just like, Tony Leung's still so hot. And it's just like, yeah. And I feel like we had that conversation in like the Grandmaster a few years ago and (laughs) for Lust Caution and for Hero. um, If listeners have not seen In the Mood for Love, it is not going anywhere on Criterion Channel. Go and watch that masterpiece movie. Very, very true. Um, yeah, good point. Glad we, uh, we did not neglect to talk about that. Um, but I guess my you... last nerdy note on this movie is 
I just uh, I watched this from buying my just released uh, Blu-ray uh, that Kino Lorber put out of this movie or Kino Classics, uh, and it looks immaculate. Thank God we finally have an HD version of this movie because it used to look DVD quality. Um, and uh, kudos to them for that. Kudos to them for that. All right, do you want to move into the IMDb game? Let's tell the children. You guys, every week, we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we'll get the remaining titles release years as a clue. That's not enough. It just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That is the IMDb game. It is, in fact, the IMDb game. Chris, would you like to go first or guess first? I want to guess first this week. All right. So, uh, obviously, the films of Ang Lee have given me no shortage of actors and actresses to choose from for my IMDb pick. The one I chose is uh, from probably one of the least watched Ang Lee movies, uh, that is taking Woodstock, which has a bunch of actors in it, one of whom is Liev Schreiber. And to my surprise, we have never done Liev Schreiber oh. yet. So go for it. Interesting. That cast is absolutely huge. When we place categories and we get the angly yes. Actors stars, or actresses. Yeah, yeah, yes. I always fall into the trap of taking Woodstock when I can never remember who's in taking Woodstock <sighs> that is not Imelda Staunton. Jonathan Groff, okay. baby. Liev Schreiber, Manchurian Candidate. Yes, correct. Next question is, which slash how many of the screams do I think is in here? I'm going to put a button in that and come back around because I just remember he is in a Best Picture winner and that is Spotlight, so Spotlight spotlight very very good i he is the one i always forget in that cast even though i think he's great in that movie but uh i always think of the other cast members before i get to him but yes spotlight yeah i think he's spectacular in that movie two Um, for two i've been meaning to rewatch spotlight it's so Um, good god it's so good i will soon um okay scream two i'm just gonna say it scream two he's the biggest role in scream two correct scream three ah fuck um Hmm. mm. well scream three he dies right yeah, he's the first or yeah. second kill of Scream 3. Yeah. But I think he was on the poster. No, I believe that. I believe that to be true. Yeah. Mm, was he? No, he was not. He was on the poster for Scream 2. Okay. Yeah, Scream 2 is the one where, like, Cotton gets the most sort of storyline. Right, right. Um, previously mentioned in this episode, he is, um, spoiler alert, the villain of Salt. I'm going to guess Salt. I would have also guessed Salt, Angelina Jolie Salt, but it's not. Again, as I always talk about Damn. Salt, it is insane that we're all supposed to be surprised at the end of Salt that Liev Schreiber is secretly a Russian operative. Like, of course he's a fucking <laughs> Russian operative. It's Liev Schreiber. Right. All right. Two strikes. Your years are now going to be 2005 and 2009. 05 and 09. So after, after, um, what was the one I guess? Manchurian Candidate. Um, Yes. Is, 
before Spotlight. Is 05 the Omen remake? No, it's not that because they released it on 666. Stupid. Um, <laughs> they waited so long to be able to do that. Oh, right. Boy. Uh, they. Well, it's not the butler where he shits as Lyndon Johnson, literally sitting on a toilet, dropping a deuce. Dropping a deuce. <sighs> dropping some flushed aways. I forget what year the painted veil was, but I have a hard time believing one of them was the painted veil. Shout out to our episode on the painted veil. Indeed. Um. Okay. Wait, taking Woodstock was 09. It's got to be taking Woodstock. You would think, and yet no, it's not taking Woodstock. You've got to be kidding me. Um, I'm not kidding you. Um, all right, so last week we did one where um, one of the options was a film that was on the IMDb, uh, probably helped it be in the IMDb because the star was also a director. Now this one, I am just now realizing, he's not in this movie. He is only credited as, a, as the credit on the IMDb says writer. But I will also but tell he you, directed it? he directed it. Oh, he directed the Jonathan Safran Foer movie, yes. um, Everything is Illuminated. I apologize for not saying that up front, except I could have sworn he was also in that movie at some, like, in some role. But apparently he's not We can not maybe add all. that to the, we can add that to the rules of we voiceover. We should. We should. If it's only, if they're, if they're on the IMDb for a film that they are not in, but they directed or wrote, then yes. I just assumed that he was in everything is illuminated because why wouldn't he be yes everything illuminated everything is illuminated is the 05 movie right yes we should we okay. could do that by the way cuz that one definitely had oscar buzz and it went oh yeah and it had that wild trailer that everyone loved yeah and then it like and then no one liked n- the movie nobody saw the movie i feel like i feel like it just absolutely disappeared okay we should do that all right anyway oh nine we have schreiber that is not taking woodstock yeah oh nine did not have oscar buzz decidedly so it's a bad movie yeah but it's also not the kind of movie that would have oscar buzz so it's an action movie yes or a horror movie no you're right the first time action movie yeah from oh nine yeah it's too soon for something like White House Down, but I assume he is playing some type of bureaucrat. Nope. Oh. Is he playing some type of Russian? Um, I can't remember where his character comes from in this, but... He's some uh, type of Slavic. That's very is he a terrorist, possible. Like a mm-hmm. Russian Slavic terrorist. No, although... I mean, in this genre of movie, um, the bad guys in this are doing, are terrorizing. Like, that's for sure. Genre? Like a an action subgenre? Oh, no, his character a... in this is Canadian. Oh, okay. okay. Not, not uh, Eastern European. Canadian? Much like the film's protagonist. His character is also Canadian. Um, what? Yeah. Um, who's our greatest Canadian superhero character? 
you don't know it because you um, hate these movies. Um, I mean, you hate all of these movies, and whenever it, it comes up, you make a point of saying that you hate these movies, and it's not Lord of the Rings. Oh, it's the X Men movies. Yes. The X-Men... Oh, the X-Men movie at this time would have been the first standalone Wolverine movie, which had the bootleg of the incomplete visual effects drop, like, the week before the movie opened. Yes. X-Men Origins Wolverine. Uh, Liev Schreiber plays uh, Wolverine's brother, I guess? Uh, X-Men movies are a blind spot for me, because after last stand i was like i am fucking done with these movies (laughs) and i saw um first class and then never saw another one haven't seen well no i did see logan because of the oscars god don't don't bring up that remember how gavin hood uh directed satsi and everybody thought he was like the next big thing and then like every movie he made subsequent to that was like more thoroughly thrashed by the critics than the last it was just including fiddler chimes rendition (laughs) <laughs> yes, including bump 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 rendition. Yes, uh, rendition. X Men Origins Wolverine, Ender's Game. Oh, but then people came around and because uh, Eye in the Sky was uh, was better than people thought it was going to be, and then this year right. or sorry, 2019, he had that movie Official Secrets with Kira Knightley that like does not exist like absolutely positively people does not it. exist yeah um what a career what a career for gavin hood yeah so that yeah good job we have fantastic yeah. you want to give some time uh, yeah i do have for you i also went into ang lee uh stars um Wanted to mention, because we really didn't mention it this episode, uh, one of his, probably the, like, launching uh, huge success for him after Sense and Sensibility um, in terms of broad Oscar support is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, The amazing Crouching Tiger. Probably my favorite Ang Lee movie. It's so good. He has so many great movies. It's hard to say. Um... One of the stars of that movie is the great Michelle Yeoh. Okay. Michelle Yeoh. Uh, There is one voice performance. Okay. No television. All right. Well, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is going to be one of them. It is. She is amazing on Star Trek Discovery, by the way. uh, I don't watch that, but I have heard. Um, She's a blast is the Bond movie that she did uh, on there, Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes. Okay. She, like, walks up buildings in that movie. It's fucking cool. I'm going to assume that Crazy Rich Asians is one of them. Correct. So you so only I get the have the voice, voice performance oh, This left. is so hard. Okay. <sighs> I don't want to be racist and say Kung Fu Panda because I don't think she's actually a voice in Kung Fu Panda. Well, if you said that, it wouldn't be you. It would be, you know, maybe the stereotypes in that franchise. Yeah, but it's just the assumption that she's a voice in that. Um, Okay. All right. I'm not going to get any hints until I at least guess, make one wrong guess, because you're not going to want to give me a perfect score. Um, Oh, is it like, no, you're not going to tell me. 
I worry that like it's something very obvious that I'm just like absolutely not getting. Um, I'm just going to throw out Kung Fu Panda just to get it out of my head. Okay. I Is it Kung Fu Panda 2? It's Kung Fu Panda 2. Okay. <laughs> I will just let you have it because I felt like... I... Kung Fu Panda is a franchise I forget had sequels. Oh, yeah. I've never seen them. Kung Fu Panda's first two movies... I think I did see the first one, but not all of it. It's one of, like... There are only, like, five animated franchises where the first two parts got Oscar nominations for Best Animated Feature, and, like, that's one of them. Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. The 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 man, the myth, the legend, the bear. Uh, Kung Fu Panda. Yeah, okay. So, not barking up the wrong tree as much as I thought. Okay. What would I have put as the fourth? I guess Sunshine, right? I would have put Sunshine as her number four, just because I love Sunshine. Which I still so need to see. Oh my god, you should. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Michelle Yeoh rocks. Fuck yeah, she rocks. Good, uh, good episode uh, on this movie, Chris. I'm glad we talked about it. a lot. We got it in there under two hours too. We got a lot of thank God a for lot us. of discussion in there. Thank God for us. Uh, we will be back next week with our fourth film in our five film focus feature series. We will be talking about the place beyond the pines. So much to get into there. I can't wait. Oh, boy. But that is our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, tell the people where they can find you. Uh, You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd under Chris V. File. That is F-E-I-L. Yes, very true. I, on the other hand, am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts, The now including Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So set down your Mahjong tiles for a second and write something nice about us, won't you? Thank you. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Abuzz. 